It is a great pleasure to welcome back to the Innovation Show. He's here in Ireland and I nabbed him while he was over here doing a European tour for Hogan Assessments, the founder of Hogan Assessments, Dr. Robert Hogan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you back, man. We did a show probably about three years ago before COVID hit, before the world changed dramatically, but many things haven't changed. And one of those things I'd love to talk about today is one of the themes of a lot of your work is that with all this assessment test, one of the things that is often got wrong is it's not about IQ. It's not about the intelligence or what kind of degree the manager or the leader of an organization has or what experience they have. It's about their interpersonal skills. So I'd really love to talk about that today and then we can link it to innovation later on. I would say there are probably three problems with the, the IQ testing business. The first is in that history of that business that's been around for 150 years, there's no theory of intelligence. It's just a rudely empirical activity. They say intelligence is what intelligence tests test. And that's just bullshit. I mean, that's empty-headed nonsense. So first of all, there are no ideas. So the study of intelligence is the most anti-intellectual part of all of psychology. Think about that for a second. And then the second thing is that, uh, is that uh, well, there, then there's the problem that IQ discriminates against non-native speakers. Uh, and, and there's a strong social class bias as well. So it discriminates. Talented people often get low scores on measures of IQ, and and then the third big, the really big problem in, in my in my case, in my view is that the, the IQ doesn't predict that much. In, in terms of, for example, and probably the best analytic study of leadership performance ever done, uh, the correlation between IQ and performance is about 0.23. The correlation between personality and performance is about 0.55, and that's on a log scale. So it means that IQ personality is probably four times as important as intelligence. And the problem is that all of, all the validity in IQ is at the low end, so that if you're stupid, you can't do it. You can't do it. But if you're bright, all bets are off. So one of the things that is often the reason behind so many failures is you might have the best strategy in the world, but trying to get people to follow you. And you talk about the main traits of a leader that are, are really to do with how the follower sees them. Well, the bottom line test in leadership is will they work for you? And if they won't work for you, you're done. And 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 then the, then the question becomes, well, what is it that persuades people to, to to work for you? So it's all about it's all about relationship skills. It's all about being able to build a team, and you have to do that. You know, there's a lot of persuasion 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 and salesmanship involved in getting people on board with you and your agenda. And we can go about into that in detail, but by a big picture, it's all about will they work for you? And just because you're smart doesn't mean they will. What I find fascinating about your skill set and the origins of your skill set was the Navy. Mm. And in the Navy, it was traditionally do as you're told. But that didn't mean that that was how you got things done. And maybe we'll reflect what you said there about how do you show trust and bring people with you to get a more effective team? Because you had to do this yourself in the Navy. The training for officers is basically training in engineering. But the first one of the first courses we had was a course in the history of naval warfare. And, and I'm, I've always been, I've been interested in leadership, I think, my whole adult life. And uh, uh, I remember reading about Nelson, Admiral Lord High, hero of the Battle of Trafalgar, and the Nelson Touch. He was obviously one of the greatest leaders in the history of, in the history of naval warfare, in the history of warfare period. His troops just loved him. His, they, and so I thought, well, that's it. And the Nelson Touch, you know, fall out of way. Then... After I finished up and got my degree in this and that and reported aboard ship, I was put in charge of the guns. Well, I was on a combat ship. It was a destroyer. It was 
designed to kill things, to kill Russian submarines, to shoot down airplanes, to shoot them. It was a, it was a floating gun platform. It was, it was the rest of the ship existed to take these guns in place so we could fire them. So on our first trip out to Taiwan, uh, to Kaohsiung, uh, we had several gunnery exercises in which we were uh, we were unable to fire the guns. I was I was a junior officer. I didn't have, it just wasn't my. I had to go sit on a gun mount, sit down and shut up. You know. So I thought, well, that's not great. And when we got back from our first deployment, uh, I was in sort of put in charge of the guns. And I thought, well, let's see if we can get this fixed. And so I set about getting it fixed. And, and I did get it fixed. I really did. I really got it fixed. And, and, uh, and of course, the sailors were delighted to see an officer take, the gunnery, gunnery player, crew was delighted to see an officer take interest in what they were doing. And so not only did I get it fixed, get the, I mean, we won fleet-wide awards for excellence. I mean, I really got it fixed. Like, we could shoot the shit out of anything. It got to the point where I was kind of thinking, where are those Russians? So <laughs> just he tested. And I was pretty proud of that. I, in fact, I was probably as proud of that of anything I've ever done in my life. And, and, uh, and I, I worked my way through college running some crews of janitors. I, I had a lot of experience. When I got on board the ship, I had a lot of experience getting working class boys to do dirty work, which is what the Navy is getting working class kids to do, and so I knew how to do that. And I produce anyway. So I don't know if it was because we were doing so well or what. But at some point, the other officers started ragging on me, started harassing me because of the way I treated my troops. Is that is, I didn't understand naval leadership. I didn't understand naval leadership. I've got gunnery. The rest of the ship was and all these operational readiness inspections. The rest of the ship failed. And we were. I learned a real lesson there, which is work hard, do a good job, and succeed where everyone predicts failure, and they'll never forgive you. Yeah, yeah and, so. and don't tell them about it. That's yeah. the other thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it? I couldn't. I, it was, the, the, the Commodore called up and said, you know, congratulations. Oh, now I'm in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's the other thing, isn't it? Because it creates this jealousy throughout the organization. Yeah. Yeah, Please. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it was really bad. I mean, he really started significantly harassing me. So, I mean, to, and there were fist fights, like, fuck you, bam. Hmm. Uh, but uh, and I, I, that just burned me. So actually, I finished up out. And I went to graduate school to study, get a PhD in psychology. And I thought, well, I'm graduate school. I'll now learn about what really is the. Case. I thought I knew what leadership was, but now, now I'll get to know. And what did what I discovered in graduate school is that nobody knew. Back in the in the mid '60s, and for a long time thereafter, the prevailing view of leadership was it's called situational leadership, whereas how you perform how you succeed or fail as a leader depends on the circumstances you're in. So if you were successful and things went well, you were lucky. And if you were unsuccessful and things went badly, you were just unlucky. It wasn't about you. So I call that the shit happens theory of leadership. You just, you know, if it goes good, you got lucky. And if it goes bad, well, tough luck. And I thought, that's insane. So the answer was, in the mid-60s, there was no information coming out of the best universities in the country regarding uh, leadership. And so I kind of let that go for a while. To get on top of a discipline in academia takes, you have to just take, I mean, months. You have to, it's like joining a monastery. You have to really bear it and drill down. So I spent you know, about a year just mastering the academic literature on leadership. And, and what I discovered was there was nothing there. That there's absolutely no consensus among academics regarding uh, the characteristics. And, and as of today, I mean, my line right this very minute, right this afternoon would be, the academic study of leadership's failed. They, they, they can't tell you what makes for effective leadership. So we set out on our own, trying to figure this out. And uh, I always liked Freud. 
Freud was really interesting because you know, parapraxis, slips of memory, slips of tongue, and, and what they reveal. So you learn more about people from what they do wrong than from what they do right. <laughs> so I thought, well, if there's no consensus about what makes for a good leader, what about bad ones? And no one had ever asked this question before. So what about bad ones? And I said, well, first of all, how many of them are there? That's an interesting question by itself. And after a fair amount of data snooping and fiddling around, I concluded, I concluded that somewhere between 65 and 75 percent of existing leaders or managers in public and private sector in America, about 60 to 75 percent of them were incompetent. By incompetent, I mean they were actively alienating their staff, 65 to 75 percent. And so I remember, and so I began promoting that notion. There are two questions. What's the base rate of incompetent management? And then what's the reason for that? So let's take the first question. At a big conference, professional I.O. conference in about 2002, Big room, 500 people, wall to wall, standing room only, you know, McKenzie, Bain, etc. And I said, what do you think the base rate of incompetent management in corporate America might be? Guy over here says 2%. Guy over here says 4%. Guy over here says 6%. Then I said, what would you say if I told you the base rate of incompetent management was somewhere between 65 and 75%? And the room erupted. Shaking their hands at me. You take money from organizations to tell them what they want to hear as opposed to telling them what they need to hear. And what they need to hear is that the 65, 75% are alienating the staff and causing you know, immense financial problems and breakdowns in every possible part of their organization. So there was that. That was just putting a stake in the ground about the fact that bad management's real. And then the next question becomes why is there some, where does it come from? What causes it? And that led us to adventures on the dark side and this notion that, you know, that there are these. Strengths that get overused, and then when they're overused, so intensity and passion turns into bullying. Uh, courage and self-confidence turns into narcissism. Diplomacy and social skill turns into psychopathy. Um, careful attention to detail turns into micromanagement. It's a risk avoidance turns into paralysis. And so that that's uh, subsequent research is showing how these what's a taxonomy of the dark side we identified you know like 11 themes in the dark mm-hmm. side which are quite robust and pretty much ex- that view is now pretty much accepted i think around the world in fact it's, it's so accepted that everyone else claims to have invented it or discovered it and who are the hogans <laughs> <laughs> no i'm quite i'm quite serious really yeah, well, the, the 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 knockoff is called the dark triad yeah and this is a just you know, true dribble anyway so then, you, so we we made the case that, that there's a lot of incompetent management around, and that, that mostly it comes from dark side, and the dark side is mostly about strengths that get overused. And then, and then after that, just working on what can you do about this, and how can you set things up, and blah blah blah. So you know when you you had that conference where you told the truth, the, the, telling the truth can be bad for business. Get you put in jail. Yeah, well, it can also like for example. Nobody likes getting tests. You, if, even if you get pulled over for uh, a driving test, you know, and you haven't had a drink, yeah. <laughs> you don't like being tested, breathalyzed. Yeah. And the same with any kind of test. Does it happen to you a lot? <laughs> no, thankfully. I, I cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Too many DUIs. <laughs> so, yeah. I, but I, I often think about that with the Hogan assessment, because if you can unearth some maybe uncomfortable truths for people, they don't want those to be known. And if you have a HR manager or an L&D manager or a CEO or a leader in the organization right. who's willing to yeah. pluck out the weeds, that can be 
maybe bad for business. I'm I'm not sure, but I'm sure a lot of organizations don't want to know those That's right. inconvenient truths. <clears throat> People evolved as group living animals. We're basically we're pretty much the same as we've been for a million years. What you see right here right now, except for the, the television is old 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 news. And the principal factor driving, there were two factors driving human evolution. With it, there's, there's competition is the law of biology. I mean, biology is about competition. There's two, for people, there's two kinds of competition. There's competition within the group for status, power, and control of resources. It's called sexual selection. That's what Darwin was all about. But he also, there's also, so there's competition within group. Who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down, who's coming, who's going, who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's, who's going to run for president next, who's going to be the next CEO. So intense competition, and that's what everybody's interested in. There's also competition between the groups. That's what warfare is. You may have heard of warfare. <laughs> Most academics don't like to talk about the reality of warfare, but the, warfare is the principal factor driving human evolution, the most important factor. And so, I mean, so it's, I like to use the analogy, you're in, it's time one, you're living in the forest, and you're, you're in this part of the forest, and the, there's some other guys in another part of the forest, and at some point they decide they like your resources better than they like theirs, and they come to get them. And when they come to get your resources, they don't come with their lawyers. <laughs> they, they come. And if they're successful, and this is over and over and over for a million years, if they're successful, they don't, they don't not only kill you, they eat you. And if they eat you, you disappear from the gene pool. That's called evolutionary pressure. So there's pressure within the group for status, but there's pressure between the groups for sheer survival. And leadership is about keeping the group organized to, to defend itself, defend yourself against alien intruders. Leadership, so bottom line on this one is leadership is a resource for the group, not a source of privilege for the incumbents. Okay, so with me so far? Mm -hmm. So there's competition within the group, which is what everybody talks about, and there's competition between the groups, which is what the Ukrainians are having to deal with right now. And everyone else had better pay attention because that one's real <clears throat> and that was way more consequential because that, that really will get you killed you won't get killed if you don't make ceo but you will get killed if they take you over and they'll do bad things to your family so so what this this then brings us immediately to the distinction between what we call emergent leadership and effective leadership emergent leadership is who who show, who rises to the top in these organizations emergent leadership is about getting to the top Effective leadership is about defending yourself against the Russians. And organization, this is, this is the lesson we just cannot get across. They confuse, so if you, ever, you, you know what hypos are, hypo, mm -hmm. hypotension. That's all about emergent leadership. That's, that has nothing to do with effective leadership. Effective leadership is about staying alive. It's about keeping the business together. It's about prevailing against external competition, which is universal, ongoing, relentless. Emergent leadership is just about getting raised, getting promoted. So there, this, all the discussion around high potentials and it's, it's what, what's going on in, I don't know what, anything about Irish politics, but in the U.S. right now, you know, who's the next president going to be? That ought not to be the question. The question ought to be who can fix the economy? Who can get us ready to deal with the Chinese? Who can, you know, fix, well, one more time, just fix the economy. And that's a question of leadership. And that's not what's getting asked. What we're looking at is who's got the best smile. Who's most charismatic? And charisma, charisma, charisma. Charisma is another word for narcissism. Measures of charisma and, nar and measures of narcissism correlate more highly than height and weight. So when you hear people talking about charisma, you're almost always talking about narcissism, and narcissism is Donald Trump, Boris Johnson. 
I'm sure there are no narcissists in Ireland. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> and it's the narcissists, it's charismatics, who, who are the emergent leaders. And that's just a recipe for disaster because they're just working for themselves and they're in it for what they can get out of it. Effective leadership is, is Zelensky in, in, in the Ukraine. He's, I mean, he's a walking, talking, living exemplar of how leadership should actually can I ask you about one of the very important things you talk about? And this was one of the most common feedback we got from the last episode we did together was your point on humble leadership. So you mentioned Zelensky that even though somebody might succeed and emerge as a leader and then they get to the position of a leader and then they continue to show those the correct skills, the correct characteristics like humble leadership it can go against them because people confuse yeah. humility with weakness. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Uh, but that's a terrible, there's real data behind this. The, the academic study of leadership has failed because they never asked the right questions. The question is not who gets to the top, which is what they always ask. Well, you know, what is it to set Jack Welch apart from Mo, Joe Schmo? That's not the, the question is who runs an effective organization and who doesn't? And there's only, as far as I know, there's only been a couple of studies that actually focus on effectiveness. That would be the Collins book, Good to Great, is, is, is the first. Is, that's an absolute landmark of leadership research. And what he shows is that the CEOs of highly, high-performing organizations, I'm talking about making money, you know, staying together, making money for a long period of time. CEOs of high-performing organizations are always humble and intensely competitive. And that would have been Nelson, of course. The, the troops respond to both. It's not enough to be humble. You also have to be seriously after it. You have to really, really want to win. You have to understand that it's a real competition, and, and we, unless we work together, we're going to just go away. The typical politician is just about getting to be in charge, and and then and then and then cashing in. So yeah. So the, but the the win, humility is the opposite of narcissism, and, and the troops can tell immediately. So humble humble doesn't mean meek or mild. It just means well, the, the, actually, there are a couple of things that characterize humility. It's <clears throat> understanding that you don't have all the answers, understanding that other people may things, know things you don't know, and understanding that you can make mistakes. So one of the principal individual differences factors driving career success or career failure is the inability to learn from experience. And that's, what, that's the big problem with narcissists. They can't, because they never make a mistake, so they can't learn from experience because there's never no And conversely, Highly successful people are able to learn from, they, they're willing, it's coachability, it's willing mm -hmm. to listen to feedback, it's willing to admit you made a mistake, it's willing to, if you're competitive, then it's, I made a mistake, but I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to, I see what I did, and, and you will make mistakes, you have to make mistakes, because there are too many factors driving the outcome of decisions, there are too many factors driving success and failure, so you, best you can do is kind of minimize your mistakes and learn from them. And that's the problem with narcissism. Narcissists, they can't learn from experience. And that's the strength of humble people is that they're open to feedback and willing to listen and willing to learn. Can I connect then that as maybe a, a final point to innovation then? Because innovation and failure are symbiotic. They're, they go hand in hand. You're going to fail your way towards finding out a product. It's like emergent success, yeah. success, if you want to call it that. And if you have a narcissistic leader or a top-down command and control leader, the company or the organization is doomed to failure with, within that yeah. type of organization. I love your 
overview of why so many change efforts fail and why innovation efforts fail in organizations? Because we're seeing it more now than ever before. Well, I'm not exactly a scholar of innovation. Uh, uh, there's a rule in biology which is adapt, migrate, or die. And adapt in, in business world is the same thing as innovation. So you mm. have to be constant. You have to be constant. But that's the part about the humility is being open to ideas and open to new. That's what you meant, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's the connection you made. Oh, you Irish guy, too <laughs> subtle for us Americans. Uh, yeah, no, that the, the notion that other people know things you don't know mm. and that they can be doing things better. That's that's rooted in humility, and that's the essence of innovation. Yeah. Well, it's also innovation that comes from just hostility toward authority and, 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 and liking to mess with things and tr turn things around and see what will change. But you're right. You're right. There's also, I mean, you, what you, implicit in what you just asked me was what I call the Apple paradox, which is that guys like Steve Jobs and Bezos and uh, Musk and uh, these are not nice guys, but they run really successful organizations. And, and, and how can they do that? And, I, and Jobs is, I mean, he, these guys are just, they're often just monsters. They're way, they're not just unpleasant. They're really bad guys. But how can they be so, so nasty? And so I call it the Apple Paradox. I was such a nasty guy running such a successful organization. And I think the answer is that there's kind of three problems in leadership. There's entry-level leadership, there's middle management, and then there's operations at the top. And most of what we talk about when we're talking about leadership and leadership performance concerns how to handle subordinates. So then handling subordinates is really important, but that's just the first problem in leadership. Second problem in leadership is how do you handle your peers? Because you're in an organization, they're coming after you. you know, these are not your peers. I mean, they're your peers, but they're also basically your worst enemies. So how do you do? So that's a separate set of skills. In the middle, it's, it's dealing with your peers. And it's also in the middle, you're, you're re reconciling crazy ideas from the people above you and pushing them on down to the people below you. And, and, and there are a lot of these ideas really are crazy. And, and you go to see the troops and say, you know, the third floor wants us to do X. What? Yeah, no. Well, that's crazy. Wait, wait. And, and, then you're, and then you're definitely in the position. You got to do what they told you. But the, and you got to sell it to these guys. And they don't want to hear it. And they don't want to hear it. And so, so middle management is, is really stressful. Genuinely, there's data that's really stressful. But at the top, the goal at the top is to plot the proper direction. You don't have to implement, you don't have to, because you're the boss. You, and I think that's what the strength of guys like Jobs and Musk is, is that they, they got the strategy right. They figured out the proper direction. And then the organization had the sense to surround them with, to cut them off from the rest of the organization so they couldn't poison it. And I, I think that's the Apple paradox, and I think that's the answer. And if you don't kind of encapsulate them and seal them off, they really, I mean, well, I, I'm almost positive that Jobs was just operating in a bubble because he was just so toxic. And Robert, where can people find Hogan Assessments if they want to engage with you and the team? Look to the stars <laughs> up there in the glowing firmament. I'll link to that in the, the <laughs> well, show notes. Yeah. We're on the internet, www.hoganassessments.com. Beautiful. Dr. Robert Hogan, thanks for joining us. Pleasure.